open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, and we're going to look at uh, the first 24 verses. Uh, The title of this morning's message is The Deity of Jesus. Uh, So the question is, how how important is that to know who Jesus is? Can he be just a good man, a good teacher, a moral philosopher, another religious leader? I think our view, well, I know our view and your view and my view of who our God is really uh, directs how we live and how we respond to him. John mentioned a few different things that I want to talk about this morning. You know, we all come here in different uh, situations. You know, some are hurting, some are joyful, some are sorrowful, some are repentant and looking for God to do something great in their life. And our understanding of who God is and how he's all sufficient to meet all those needs is really going to help us in our walk with him. And this morning we're going to look at a story of a man who was healed by God. But, believe it or not, that's not the main point of the text. What you'll see when we study is the main point is that Jesus Christ is God. And he uses a healing to demonstrate that. And we'll, I'll talk about that when we get there. But let's pray. One more time and ask God to really uh, speak to our hearts, each and every one of us, wherever we are in our life at this moment. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are all those things we sung about. You are great. You are triune. You are holy. And uh, we echo all those things. And I pray this morning that each and every person, as they sung those things or said those things or thought those things, that they would really believe it. I pray this morning before we leave that each and every person would know that, would believe it, and walk out of here this morning knowing you, desiring to know you even more. So we ask that you would speak to us as we open your holy word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me to, like I said, John chapter 5. I'm going to read the first seven verses and talk about that, and then we'll close up with the last, you know, 8 through 24. So... Let me read this and then we'll talk about it. It says, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame and withered waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever, when first, um, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well, and whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish... To get well. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So let's stop right there. Here we're confronted with a problem. There's a man sitting at the sheep gate, at the pool by the sheep gate, I should say, that's known as Bethesda. And we're told right away that he has been sick of some type of illness for 38 years. He's wanting to be healed. That's why he's sitting there. So he waits by the pool. And and maybe your Bible, I noticed that if you have an ESV, they leave out uh, one verse here. And your verse, verse 4, if you look at it, it's probably bracketed or something like that. 
It's about this water the boiling over that the angel Lord comes down and touches the water and it starts to boil over. And uh, the first one down there gets healed. And so many say, well, that wasn't really in the text. It's more of a editor's note in your Bible. And if you have a study Bible, it'll say that down there at the bottom. Did the Lord really go down and touch water and whoever went first one down there was healed? I don't know. What I've studied, what I've read was that there was a hot spring somewhere nearby that fed into that pool. And it was believed that when the water got stirred up, the first one down there was to get healed. So whatever the case, maybe that's not the main point. So I just, I, but I wanted to touch on that just so you know. Because you're like, where is that pool, man? I need some healing right now. That's a fountain of youth of some sort. No. So it was believed to have healing powers. It could have been, you know, a fable or something like that. It could have been like Vicks. You know, like Vicks has healing powers. We put that on there. But the problem was is this guy was never the first one down there. You feel kind of sad for him. He says every time the water stirs up and he makes his way down there, whether he drags himself or he maybe has a stick of some sort, he never beats, he never makes it because somebody else always beats him. And he's the first one down there. But nevertheless... He goes down there often, and Jesus is aware of it. He's been down there for quite some time. And Jesus asked the man in verse 6, do you wish to get well? The man says, well, he he does, obviously. That's why I'm here. But nobody, he kind of says, well, he doesn't even say I do want to get well. He says, there's nobody to put me in the water. And he brings up his issue. Every time I try to go forward, somebody else beats me there. But there's an important lesson here that I want us to get from this. Because this guy's thinking, if I'm the first one there, if I do this one thing, God is going to heal me. I think so many times, each and every one of us at some point in our lives think that way too, right? If I do this one thing, God is going to answer my prayer. God is going to heal my marriage. God is going to heal me of this infirmity or make me better. If I just read more, if I just pray more, if I just fast more, if I sing louder, if I raise my hands the highest, God is going to do this one thing for me. And guess what? That's not the answer. God may do it, but I'm sure each and every one of us can attest to, you know what, I've, I started this year of going through the Bible. I said, you know what, this year I'm going to go through the Bible every day, and um, God's going to answer my prayer. I'm going to tithe a little more. I'm going to give to a certain ministry, and God's going to do this for me. No, that's nowhere in Scripture. And, that, and that's kind of why I read this, too, is that that little bracketed statement was a comment. It may not have been that God really does that. It was believed that he does that. And the writers of your, of your text inserted that in there. And so Jesus says, do you want to get well? He says, well, if I'm the first one down there, yes, I will. And again, don't miss that lesson. There's nothing... You can't read more, you can't pray more, you can't repent more, fast more, give more to get something from God. So if that's your understanding of God, that's an incorrect view of God, even if a preacher teaches that on TV. If you sow the seed of faith, right, if you give me more money, you're going to get your blessing today. That's unbiblical, unscriptural. And it's also a a misrepresentation of who our God is. And this is what's going on here. They had this belief that we're the first ones down. The angel of the Lord is stirring the water. And if I'm the first one down there, I'm going to get healed. 
And again, so many of us live our lives that way. If I do this more, God's going to think I'm better. He's going to forgive me more or, uh, you know, my team. I mean, I've mentioned this so many times when I was a little kid. I always thought my Cowboys would lose because I just sinned. Like God was doing, like God cared about the Dallas Cowboys. No, there's nothing I could do, you know, to make God look at me any better other than believe in him. And that's what we'll talk about in a moment. But that's an important lesson for us to understand. That's not how God operates. And again, some of us and all of us at certain times think that, right? When we sin, oh, if I feel sorry a little bit more, he's going to forgive me. If I stay away from church a few weeks, then, you know, I've, I've done my penance and he's going to forgive me. That's not it. Let me just say this. It is only by the will, mercy, and the grace of God that we may be healed. Because it is really up to God to decide when and what and how and where he's going to do something. And this is what the text is about. This story leads into a more important section of this text. And that's what we're going to study this morning. But I had to build it up so you understand. You know, couldn't Jesus just heal everybody right there? But he's only going to heal one guy, which we'll see, because it's for a specific reason. So let's look at the rest of the text, going to verse 8. So he asked this man, do you want to be healed? And he says, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another man steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Some of your Bibles might say mat. It was, some, it was a mat made out of straw. Immediately, the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now, when it says Jews, and John, and I mentioned this before, he's talking about the religious authorities. Not every single Jew is, is tied to that comment. It's usually the religious authorities that were there, and so John describes them that way. And it's interesting to note, they know this guy has been sick for 38 years. They don't care that he's walking around with a pallet. They're not like, wow, you got healed. No, they're like, hey, what are you doing walking around? It's amazing, and it, and it, it keeps going. Scripture is funny like that if you pay attention to those minor details. So they say, what are you doing carrying your pallet? But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, here it goes, who's the man who said, do you pick up your pallet and walk? They don't, again, they don't care that he's healed. They want to know who told him to do that. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. This guy was afraid of the religious authorities as well. He didn't want to get put out of the synagogue. So as soon as he finds out who did it, he ran to tell the Jewish leaders. It's funny. The man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself and working. Let's let's stop right there and back up a little bit. So the problem is, is this man is sick. 
of some sort. Can't walk, probably, obviously. For 38 years, that's the problem. And that guy started out in the beginning. What was the purpose of that problem? God has a purpose for all things. And even in sickness, whether we believe it or not, God has a purpose. And that purpose we're going to see through the rest of this section is to display or reveal that he is God. And he does this first by displaying this through his works. So Jesus tells the man to pick up his pallet or his mat and walk. He heals the man. Old Testament scripture says that when Messiah comes, he's going to be the one to heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind and open the ears of the deaf. And Jesus said over and over and John said, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And here he demonstrates it in front of everybody. He displays this through his works. But the only thing these men seem to care about that Jesus was doing this on the Sabbath. How dare you heal this man on the Sabbath? No work was allowed to be done on the Sabbath. You remember from the Old Testament, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested or ceased from work, the Sabbath. Sabbath means literally to cease from your work. So God didn't cease from doing everything, did he? No, he just ceased from making the the world, the earth. In six days, he stopped doing it, and he rested. Does that mean that God doesn't work? On that day, no, Scripture says God never sleeps or slumbers, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But you see, the religious leaders of the time had developed all these rules and regulations about what it means to, quote, work. They actually developed 39 categories of things you cannot do on the Sabbath. We don't have time to go into all those things. But a lot of them were like, you couldn't make two loops of a thread. Because that was work, something that little. Like you can make one loop, but if you made a second one, uh, whoo, that's a lot of work, man. And that went from sun uh, sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. That was the Sabbath. You can look that up. Uh, I was looking at it this morning. Just some of the some of the ridiculous things that they added to the law of Moses. And one of them was that this guy was going to say, hey, you cannot carry something from one destination to another destination because that's too much work. So here he was carrying his mat, let alone he just got healed again. And he got healed so much so that he could pick up something and walk with it. He wasn't like dragging his leg like partially healed. No, he was fully healed. He picked up something and carried it. But that didn't matter to them. They said, how dare you walk around on the Sabbath carrying your mat? Or your palate. And so, as I mentioned, Jesus is going to display that he's God by his works, by his works of healing. And again, they want to know who did this, who told you to walk around. He tells them, well, it was Jesus. He didn't know, but when he found out who it was, he ran to tell them and said it was Jesus. And I want to go back to one point here, because you may have read that and said, well, that seems kind of weird. In verse 14, where Jesus tells him, behold, you have become well. He's like, you've become well. You're whole now. Don't sin anymore. And look at what he tells him. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Again, this is sometimes a misunderstanding of who God is, right? If I sin, God's going to do something bad to me. How many times, you don't have to raise your hand, do we think that? I know if I do this, like I said, that the Cowboys are going to lose. So this year I've only sinned twice. 
because the Cowboys have won. No, three times. The Cowboys have lost three times, and I've sinned all three times. No, just kidding. But some of us think like that, right? If I sin today, then I'm going to have misfortune tomorrow, something like that. Is that what Jesus is telling him? No, he's not. That's not what he's speaking about. He's speaking in regards to a changed life. Remember, even we'll we'll read the story later with the woman uh, that gets caught in adultery says, go and sin no more. The Bible tells us that we can't stop sinning. And if we think we're not going to sin, we're a liar. So we've got to take the whole, the totality of Scripture to come up with doctrines. And if it was just this verse, we might be able to think that. But there's more verses in the Bible that kind of illuminate this and, and, and speak about this, what Jesus is talking about. And so I believe that he's speaking in regard to a changed life. He's like, you're made whole now. Don't sin anymore. Don't live a life of sin or something worse is going to happen to you. Well, what's worse than being paralyzed or being maimed or crippled? A continued sin. Do you remember in Matthew 5, 29, verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30? Let me give you a similar story that kind of helps us understand what Jesus is talking about. We've all heard this, right? He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That would be worse than being crippled for 38 years, right? Verse 30, if your hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is what Jesus is alluding to this man. You're made well, you're made whole, not just literally, but spiritually whole now. Don't Go on sinning, living a life for sin, or something worse is going to happen to you. This is what he's telling the man. So it's more of a spirit on a spiritual level. Don't let your life be known for sin, because that's evidence that you're not a true believer. It's not that you don't sin anymore, but your life is no longer characterized by that, what you used to be. So that nothing worse happens. You know, I just wanted to point that out. I don't know about you, but when I read scripture and I find something, I, got, I stop for a little bit like, whoa, what does that mean? So after this, again, the man runs to the leaders, tells them that it's Jesus. And so now the religious leaders. Anger or frustration is is focused on Jesus, not that. Wow, you healed this man. Can you go heal all those other people that are sitting out by the pool? No. What did they tell him? Going back to our text in verse 16. It says, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, what things? If you know the totality of the Gospels, Jesus did a lot of things on the Sabbath, and healings was one of them, and they didn't like it. Again, forget that if somebody's getting healed, he's doing it on the wrong day. Can you just wait till the sun goes down before you start healing people? And they're persecuting Jesus for this. And what is Jesus' answer for this? Look at verse 17. But he answered them and says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Well, what is he talking about here? Jesus is telling them that God the Father is continually working. Remember I said he rested from creation, but he didn't rest from anything else. He continues to work in the lives of men. Did the Sabbath at that time, did God stop holding the world together? Did he stop holding everybody's breath? 
that we sung about, in our lungs. He didn't stop doing that. And so he's telling them, God doesn't stop doing that, and I'm not going to stop doing that. Again, it's by his works that he displays that he is God. And they understood what he was talking about. God does not cease from working in this world and being active, and neither did Jesus. The law only pertained to men, and although Jesus was a man, he was also God, so it didn't pertain to him. He continued to work on the Sabbath and do all the thing, and did all the things that God did. And they understood this because look at verse 18. It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when people say, oh, Jesus never considered himself God right there. Pretty obvious he did equal on par. It's not two gods. There's one God. Jesus we sung about, right? Blessed Trinity. So Jesus reveals that he's deity, but in the display of his works. And secondly, in his relationship with the Father. Let's look at verse eight, uh, verse 19 now and develop that a little bit more. And it also talk about some of the works. Because look at what Jesus says. So Jesus used this healing on this man to reveal that he is God in the flesh. And look at how he describes it here. Verse 18, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them again, he's answering their accusations. But hey, you're make, you're making yourself equal to God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does. These things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to those to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is very clear to them about his relationship with the Father. It's this. He's claiming deity, as we said in verse 18, but he elaborates on the relationship. He says he sees what the Father does. How does Jesus see what the Father does if nobody has seen God ever? Remember, John started out in chapter 1 saying that Jesus always existed, right? And he was with God and was God. Remember that? This, so this is a continuation of John developing this point. We have the, uh, the unfortunate thing of when we read Scripture, we read it, or at least teach it one week, and then we come back a week later. But if you were to read through it, you would see those doctrines develop. This is what John is trying to prove, like I said when we started this, that Jesus is God. The Gospel of John is doing that. And that's why a lot of, if you're into, um, you know, people that criticize Scripture, they'll say, well, Matthew, Luke, and John were written a bunch earlier. And then later on in John, because he talks about something totally different, uh, they added to it. It was a developed doctrine that came hundreds, a hundred years later. You know, they, they can't an author have a different purpose for writing? We all read books about and done the same subject but they're highlighting something different, and John is doing that here. 
<clears throat> he's demonstrating that Jesus is God. And, and Jesus is saying that here. He sees what the father's doing. And whatever the father does, he does these things in like manner, just like the father. The Jews understood exactly what he was talking about. So he sees the father. He works just like the father. And then in verse 21, he says, just as the father gives life to the dead, even the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Jesus is more than a man. He's more than a prophet. He is God incarnate and he gives life to whom he wishes, just like God the Father. And then in verse 22, the Father has given him all authority. He's given all authority to the Son to judge. So Jesus displays his deity in his relationship with the Father. And again, the Jews understood exactly what he's talking about. And as we study the Gospel of John, you'll see that over and over again. And this brings our third point about how Jesus reveals his deity. So he, he displays it in his works. He displays it in his relationship with his father. And then he displays it in his honor. Because look at what he says in verse 23. He does all these things, all these works, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. The exact same honor that is given to God the father is given to God the Son. In the Old Testament, it says that God shares his glory and honor with who? Anybody? Nobody. Jesus saying, oh, yes, he does. He shares it with the Son, who is also God. And again, the Jews understood exactly what he was talking about. And he says, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So to truly honor God, the Father, you need to honor God the Son. You can't say, well, I have God and I don't need Jesus. He's right here. He's saying, no, you have to in order to honor the son or the father, you need to honor the son. So he displays that he's God through this honor. So what's the the application for us and even the application for those who hear who hear this? Look at verse 24. And we'll close with this this little section here. Verse 24. So after he heals this man demonstrates that he is God. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. So what should our response be according to verse 24? Well, the first response, which is the same response Jesus was trying to elicit from those who heard him, was that you must believe the words of Jesus himself. Here in this text, he's saying these things to the religious leaders and all those who would hear, and he's saying you need to believe these things because I'm God. And if you believe these things, it says you believe the one who sent me. So if you say you believe the Father, then you need to believe the words of Jesus Christ himself. So that's what our response should be. Number one, I don't know where you're at in your life, But the first response that you should have to the deity of Jesus Christ is to believe Jesus's words. Secondly, believe on the one who sent Jesus, God, the father, God, the son and God, the father. So what about for those of us who say, "Okay, Robert, I I already have that down. I believe the words of Jesus. I believe the father who sent him. What's the application for me? Well, the rest of this verse and the latter half of verse 24 is for us to know that 
those who believe have eternal life. Do you know that you have that? Sometimes I think we forget what we have. We have to constantly be reminded we have eternal life right now. It's going to be fully consummated, which he talks about in the follow. We'll talk about next week in the two resurrections and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We fully get that present or that gift, so to speak, when he comes. But right now we have it. Do you know that that you're going to live eternally? That's mind boggling when you think about it. I don't know how about if you ever think about eternity and you go, whoa, I, I got to stop thinking about it. It's crazy. We sing about it. Ten thousand years, you know, we'll be praising God. We'll have no less time after that. That's crazy to think about. But we have it. Do you believe that you have eternal life at this moment? You have it. And guess what? On top of that, because you have eternal life, he says, this person does not come into judgment. We will not face the judgment of God. So all those sins that we did and we've done and you might be doing now that you're going to do when you leave here. They've been paid for already. That's why I said, I mean, there's nothing you can do. You can't be good enough, go to church enough, worship enough, tithe enough, give enough, serve enough to change that. It's already done. The judgment of God has already fallen on the son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your sin, my sin, that should be something we rejoice in. We don't have to face that judgment. The scary part is if you have not received it, then you will face the judgment of God. Again, that's that warning he gave to the man that was healed. You're made physically whole, but if you continue to live a life of sin, you're going to face something worse. The same thing is true for those of us this morning who do not believe in the Son of God. You may face something worse if you continue to live in that life. But for those who believe, you'll not face the judgment of God. And then thirdly, he says, you do not come into judgment, but you have passed out of death and into life. He's speaking of spiritual death. We will not face the spiritual death. We've passed into life and we have that now. We have spiritual life now. Remember, Jesus says he came to give life and that more abundantly. Not like monetarily or health, wealth and all that. No. Spiritual life. Now you have all the blessings of God. Read Ephesians chapter one. All those things, all those blessings in heavenly places are yours now if you believe. That's the promise because Jesus Christ is God. Those of us who believe have eternal life we will not face judgment and we have spiritual life now. So what should we do then if we can't be good enough or give enough or tithe enough to change any of that? How should we respond as believers? Well, we'll close with this last one. You should glorify God with your life. Jesus glorified the father with his life. All the things that he did and all the things that he said were for what purpose? To bring honor and glory to his father. That's all that we have to do in our life. With your works and with your words, glorify God out of your appreciation for his love for you to bring honor and glory to God for what he's done for you so that some people might see your good works and do what? Glorify God who's in heaven.
that's it. That's Christianity in a, a nutshell in like uh, 30 minutes. Jesus has done all for us. If we believe, we receive all those things, and we just live to honor and glorify him. And when you sin, because you will, repent of it. Ask God for forgiveness and sincerity and get back up and keep going. It's, it sounds too easy, right? No, shouldn't I, like, say 20 Hail Marys and, you know, limp, limp up the steps to St. Peter's Cathedral? No. No, there's nothing. If you have to do that, then what Jesus did on the cross wasn't good enough. Unfortunately, that's what our, our brothers and sisters in Catholicism are doing. They're saying what Christ did wasn't good enough. You need to go to purgatory and pay for some more. That's blasphemy. You're saying, Jesus, you hanging on the cross is almost enough. I got to do some things, too, to clean myself up and get in there. No, the Bible does not say that. And it's putting a yoke on people that they don't need. Jesus says, you've already passed from death to life. Let's live like that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you even more as we've seen this morning for who you are. You are God incarnate. And you came to give your life a ransom for many so that we wouldn't have to. And I pray that each and every person in this room this morning, Lord God, would believe that and receive it. Receive the free gift that you've given them. And Lord God, that we would leave this place desiring to live for you, to speak for you, to glorify you in any way that we can with all that we do and say. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to do that this week. Again, we thank you for all that you do for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.